0: If you would, let's turn together to the book of Ephesians, chapter 7. Did I catch anybody? Not yet? There's no Ephesians, chapter 7. (laughs) But you can turn there if you want to. Um, We're going to look this morning in Revelation, chapter 2. So if you would, let's turn there. The words are on the screen and should be in your bulletin. We're going to look at the first seven verses of this chapter together. It might feel a little bit funny uh, jumping into Revelation this morning. Um, It wouldn't be as funny as if we actually were trying to look at Ephesians 7, because that doesn't exist. But there's obviously a big picture to the book of Revelation that we're not getting into this morning at all. Uh, The reason why we're looking at Revelation chapter 2 is because these are the last words that we have written about the church in Ephesus. And we've been spending 12, 13 weeks in the book of Ephesians together, and so Figured if we start where the Bible started with Ephesians, which is in chapter 18, 19, and 20 of the book of Acts, and then went into the actual six chapters of Ephesians together, we should probably end where the Bible ends, talking about Ephesians. So this morning, that's why we're looking at Revelation chapter 2. So we're not going to get into the big picture of Revelation today. We're looking at this because these are the last words written to this church and about this church. So hear this, I'm going to read to you the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, as we as we arrive at this spot in the year and this spot in your Word. And as we think through the final words that you have for us and thinking about this church that you started and you built and you matured in Ephesus, we thank you, Lord, that we get to look at these words and think about them. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to make the connection between what you are saying here in Revelation 2 about this church in Ephesus? And would you help us to make the connection between that and our lives living here In Eastern North Carolina in 2018, would you help by focusing our entire lives on Jesus? We pray this so that you would get glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Remember, just for a moment, if you think about the book of Ephesians and you think about the letter before we get into this, just remember that the book of Ephesians breaks down like this. The first three chapters are about what we have in Jesus. The first three chapters of Ephesians are where God is telling us over and over and over that he refuses to let us think that our relationship with him started with us. And he has to do that in three chapters because we want to immediately jump into, well, God, just tell me what to do and and let me live a good life and let me do things so that I can get things from you. God has to say, no, I need you to think about and focus on everything that I have done for you. And it takes three chapters to do that. And then chapters four through six, God shows us in the book of Ephesians and those chapters what it looks like to live as if Jesus has done everything, what it looks like to live as a people who are looking more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that means in chapter 4 that, we're, that what Jesus has done makes a difference in our lives, and we walk in a different way. That's verse 1 of chapter 4. Then we are reminded in chapter 5 that we're supposed to be imitators of God. Uh, and that means that we live out humility and love and patience and long-suffering and everything, in our marriages, in our families, and at work. And it means that we end by always recognizing that there is a spiritual battle that's going on, that there is real supernatural warfare that is taking place, and we feel that in our lives. feels an awful lot like a wrestling match, and we need God's power all of the time. Now, fast forward from the end of chapter 6 to these words here in Revelation 2. They're written about 20 to 30 years after the end of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which means they were written around the year 90. We'll just use that as a general date. Um, Remember that, and actually I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you, I don't think John Paul did in his introductory looking at Ephesians, but remember that when the church in Ephesus got planted, that... That church had one of the greatest teachers in the early church. Apollos was their first teacher. He was an amazing teacher. He's known for his eloquence. Following Apollos, this church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches that they planted actually had the Apostle Paul for a while as their pastor. He stayed at Ephesus, which is modern-day Western Turkey, longer than he stayed anywhere else, over two years. And then when the Apostle Paul left, he actually sent Timothy to them so that Timothy, young Timothy, like age young Timothy, was their pastor. And following Timothy, I did a little research on this, and it seems as though that the Apostle John, the guy that wrote Revelation, actually did his last pastoral ministry before he was exiled and wrote this, these 22 chapters of Revelation. He actually pastored the church at Ephesus. Now imagine having that type of pastoral pedigree. Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and really old John. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? So here we have these words in Revelation, the last words about this church in Ephesus. And this is a church, like the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches, this is a church that we As Christ Presbyterian Church in 2018, we really resonate with this church. You know that? I sat down this week and started writing down uh, how close and how similar we are to this church in Ephesus. I've got a bunch of these and I'm going to bullet point them for you because I don't know that we've taken this angle yet to think about how much we resonate with this church in Ephesus and their surrounding churches. Listen to this, and if you want scripture references, I can give you those after. I won't lay all those scripture references out for you now. The church in Ephesus, they had elders and deacons. Sound familiar? We do too. They had elders and deacons. This was a church at Ephesus and the surrounding churches. They believed in election. They believed in predestination. They believed that salvation is by grace. That when, you, that when you think about what has happened in salvation, that, that God has set his love on a people before the foundation of the world. It goes, his love goes from eternity past to eternity future. We get with that. We believe salvation is by grace too. Um, this is a people that saw themselves as part of God's plan of reuniting all things in heaven and earth in Jesus. That's chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. We have the same vision. We believe that we are people that are caught up into what God is doing, reuniting all things because of Jesus. This was a church that planted churches. This was a church that had a very, very deep understanding of sin. That sin wasn't just practice. It was also a power. It was also a presence. This church had a very deep understanding of sin. Sin sin wasn't just outward behavior. There are powers that are out there. There's a presence of it in our lives, deep, deep, deep. Uh, Here's something else. This church believed that God acts first and makes us alive. That God causes us to be born Again, that's God's work and he takes credit for it and we boast in him. Uh, This church believed that faith comes after having a new heart. Faith comes after being born again. This church believed that faith is a gift of God, that it is not a work, but it is a gift from God. This is a church that believed in one baptism, one baptism for the, for the remission of sins. This is a church that was really interested in thinking about how Jesus, uh, Jesus addresses relationships, especially with those that are different than we are and ethnically different than we are. Because we are, all, we are all prone to be selfish and prize our own race. This is a church that was willing to see the implications of the gospel for race, and for our self-centeredness. This was a church that wanted to think deeply about how uh, Jesus makes our marriage different, how Jesus changes our views of the family, and how Jesus changes our views of work. We look at all this stuff together, by the way. Hope this is somewhat of a review. Uh, This is a church that welcomes children in worship, They were excited to have children in worship. This was a church that rejected false teaching and was aware of that. We'll talk about that more in a minute. This was a church that knew that wrestling with evil was done by stepping into a bigger reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what we looked at last week. And so then we read these verses in 1 through 7, and these are the parting words that God has for us to think about as we think about this church in Ephesus and our own church. And these parting words are both encouraging and they lay out something for us to work on. So here are the parting words that are encouraging. Look at verses two and three. Three things that God highlights for this church. Three things that Jesus says that should be profoundly encouraging to our church and the church in Ephesus. Uh, that he uh, recognizes their toil, that he recognizes, Jesus recognizes that they were having uh, a patient endurance, and Jesus recognized that this church values good doctrine. Three ways of, three things that Jesus wants to encourage us in. Now, when God talks about the reality that he recognizes our toil, what does that mean? It's not a word that I pretty much ever use. I can't imagine, I I can't think of a time when I've ever used that word toil, you know? What Jesus is highlighting here is the fact that he looks at his people and he sees that they are diligent, that they are putting effort into their spiritual lives, that they are striving to integrate the gospel, the reality of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection in his life, that they are trying to bring that into the whole of their lives. That they are not interested in living compartmentalized lives in which, well, I have one way where I, where I live at work and I present at work, and another way that I present at home. But they are interested in, in not separating anything their faith in their life. Their faith informs everything about them, which means they're thinking through what it means to have the power of Jesus in every moment of life. That means that if you look back over your life this year and if you think about and and recognize that, that you are someone that has prayed this year, that you are someone who who has picked up the word of God and you have read God's word to you this year. If you have been involved in relationships with people this year in which you have had spiritual conversations, in which you are engaged in what's going on in your life and what's going on in their life, if you have participated in coming to the table and partaking the Lord's Supper, if you have done these things if you look back and you have done these things, Jesus is saying, I have seen that. And it is not in vain. Because if you're praying and you're reading God's word and you're fellowshipping with his people and you're talking about life and you're participating in the supper and participating in the life of the church, it is never in vain. And Jesus says, I see you, church of Ephesians. I see you. I see you, Christ pray. I see you. I know that you've prayed. I know that you have been involved in one another's lives. And I want to encourage you, keep going. Isn't that wonderful to think about? That our Savior looks at everything that we have done and he says, I see it and it's good. But not only toil, he also says patient endurance. Meaning, as you start connecting the dots of your life through the ups and downs, you realize this more and more and more the older that you get that you have continued to believe that you have been patient through the circumstances of life doesn't mean perfect not one of us have been perfect in any circumstance of our lives that's not what Jesus is saying Jesus is saying, I have observed that you have been patient through the ups and downs of life. You have continued to believe. You have continued to struggle to believe in your life. Jesus is saying, I see it. At the moments in which your life has been really, really hard, I see that you are still striving to believe and trust me. To get more precise about what's going on when John writes this about the church in Ephesus here, the church in West Turkey and the churches around that region, they were all facing intense persecution. So when Jesus says, I see your patient endurance, he is specifically thinking about the reality that they were being persecuted. And Jesus says, Yet throughout all of that, you have continued to believe, you are bearing up under the pressure. You are still clinging to God and reminding yourself and reminding each other of His promises. The third is that you value good doctrine. We see this in verse 2 and verse 6. Jesus is encouraging us, He's encouraging this church to value good doctrine. He even gives the example of of the Nicolaitans, they were false teachers. It's really hard to figure out exactly what they believed and exactly how they functioned. But let's just say this. If you look at verse 6, whatever it was that they specifically taught, however they were living, Jesus hated it. There aren't too many times in the Bible when you find something that Jesus hates and he says it. This is one of those. Jesus could not stand their teaching or their practice. And that puts all of us on guard especially those of us that like to figure out, well, what exactly are they teaching? Because I want to stay away from that. But we don't exactly know what they were teaching. But it seems as though that their teaching was connected to this prophet or the type of teaching was similar to the type of teaching from this guy in the Old Testament named Balaam. And what it seems like is this, that as Balaam loved to gain from wrongdoing, Seems like the Nicolaitans were the same way. That somehow they like to teach and teach falsely for their own gain, so that they were peddling spiritual things just so they could indulge themselves. And Jesus detests that, and he says, "Church, you have recognized that. You have recognized." a false teacher. You recognize when someone is just trying to teach spiritual things for their own gain, for their own purposes. Jesus says, I've observed you. I've observed you doing this. A step away just as a big picture just really quickly. Just remember, good doctrine is really important. Understanding what the Bible says, and following his teaching is very important. Understanding good doctrine and growing in doctrine is part of what it means to grow. Understanding good doctrine is part of what it means to be maturing in your faith. Because as Paul talked about in Ephesians in the first six chapters, chapter four, he talks about how good doctrine actually enables us to discern who God is so that we're not just being tossed about by this teaching and that teaching, that as we know more about God, we actually are growing and can understand what is true and what is false. You see, that's so important for us because when we study the Bible and we understand more about what God says, we get to wrestle with, do I really know the God of the Bible? Or have I made God out to be something that I want? And in understanding good doctrine, it means that, Do I really know who I am? Or am I just believing a lie about myself? And Jesus is saying that this church and these churches were really interested in knowing God and in knowing themselves, in finding out who God is and who we are from his word. So never forget, good doctrine is really important. And Jesus is encouraging us along these same lines. I see you praying and fellowshipping together. I see you in the ups and downs of your life, even if no one else does. Jesus has observed that you are struggling to believe. He wants to encourage you. And he also wants to say, keep going. Keep learning. Keep discerning what the Bible says about God and about who you are. Because you can always trust what he says. Any other source will lead us astray. At best, they're supplementary to what the Bible says. Now, there's something in these parting words that he wants to say that we need to work on. Look at verse four that we have abandoned the love that we had at first, or forsaken our first love. Sound familiar? Remember in January when I told you what we were gonna talk about? That this whole year in 2018, we're gonna pursue thinking about our first love. You know why? Because of this right here. Having gone through Ezra and Nehemiah and thinking through the Psalms, thinking about our first love and those five things all culminates with this. This is something we have to constantly think about. And Jesus says to this church that they have forsaken their first love. They have abandoned the love they had at first. And please don't let this sound harsh because what Jesus is saying here, he's not meaning it in a harsh way at all. He's actually drawing his people close. He's pulling us in when he says this because you see he's encouraging our church. He's encouraging his church, but he's also saying, but we got to talk about this too. Have you ever had someone who's done that to you? You knew and and built rapport with them so that they had uh, ways in which they could encourage you but yet there was also times in which they had to say something challenging to you but you received it in love knowing that they they were drawing you in. I remember when I was seven or eight, I had a really, really bad problem of exaggerating and I remember my dad pulling me aside and I remember him saying, son, if you don't tell the truth, And if you don't quit exaggerating, no one will ever believe a word that you say. Now, my dad meant that with 100% love, didn't he? Well, yes, he did. He did. He was drawing things out of me so that I could know myself better and I could understand more about who he is. I like it. That's the passage we're talking about. I heard, is that right? That's Revelation 2. I just heard patient endurance there. We are on the same page. This is encouraging. This is good. Have you ever had someone in your life draw you out? Have you ever had someone who's been able to encourage you and yet pull things out of you? I had another instance of this in my life, more recent. It was actually when I started going to my counselor, and I was at a really low spot in my life, and he said, Dave, why are you here? And I said, I don't know. I'm just afraid, because I don't know how far I've slipped. I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know how to determine exactly where I am or where I'm supposed to be. And he looked at me, and he said, Dave, you're not going back. This is a time of new beginnings a time in which God is going to do something different. You're not going back. God is always moving you forward. That meant so much to know that he could draw out of me how I was feeling and then immediately say in a nice way, you're wrong. You're not going back, (laughs) which was so freeing for me because he wanted to say, you're going forward because God is with you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is drawing us out as if to say, look, you're doing great in these areas, but you need to get a little bit more serious in this one. This is Jesus saying to you and to me, to our face, I've got a better way for you to live. I've got a better way for you to live as an individual and to live as a church. You see, what Jesus is saying here when he says that we have forsaken our first love is that we are settling for less than we should. We are settling for less than we should. It seems as though that this church, which we all have this tendency to fall into, is really good on doctrine. But being really concerned about doctrine seems to have translated into being unloving. Now, remember, this is a church that we resonate with. These are our people. And Jesus is saying, you have become the theology police. That you're just running around looking to see what heresy you can find or what you think is heresy or what you think is wrong or what you think is off. And what's happened is that good tendency to value good doctrine has ended up meaning that you become unloving. And you are settling for less than you should. That over time, this church had become more concerned with identi- identifying wrong teaching than it had reaching the people who were teaching something that was wrong. Ever had that struggle in your life? Because you see, it's not an either or. We need to believe what the Bible says, and those that don't believe what the Bible says, we need to relationally, gently pursue in love so that we're not always coming across as just trying to find what is wrong with what people believe and making sure that they can't inspect what we believe, you know, because we're the ones that can do all this. We're the ones who are right all the time. In my life, when this has happened, it's looked an awful lot like me being more and more concerned in theoretical things and less and less personal with people. In my life, what this has looked like, being more concerned about theology to the point in which I was unloving, looked like I didn't do a whole lot of listening to people to understand why they believe what they believe and what their story was and how they grew up and how they were exposed to the Bible, how they were exposed to the church, how they were exposed to the teachings of Christianity. It meant that there was a period of my life, uh, probably close to a decade, in which not only was I not listening very much, but I was pretty much just jumping from one problem or what I perceived as a threat or what I next thought could be a potential threat. Just swinging from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next all of it depersonalized. None of it had anything to do with like actually caring for others or having a conversation. And oh, by the way, to think about this church, this makes perfect sense why they would struggle with forsaking their first love. Think about where they came from they live, many of those who made up the church in Ephesus when it first started, they lived a debauched lifestyle. They were immersed in a man-centered culture. Orgies were normal and common. And God, in his grace, broke into their lives. And he brought them to a realization of who he is and what he has done in Jesus. And it radically changed them. All of a sudden they started make the world made sense because God was real and he had acted in them and on them and his love was better than any other love that they could find through any party besides that God's parties are always better but that's another story. But God's love lifted all of their guilt. God's love lifted their shame you can see how they would automatically swing to the other extreme, right? Having lived that kind of lifestyle and God's grace breaks in and now they know God's grace and so boom, now they become rigid. And then you add persecution on top of that? Having known a debauched lifestyle and now knowing grace and now they're facing persecution, of course they're gonna struggle with loving. Of course that's gonna be difficult because they're on hyper alert everywhere. And they're clinging to being right all the time. Doesn't it make sense? That's why Jesus would come to them and say, you are doing these things well in this area you need to work on. And oh, by the way, we struggle with this too. We forsake our first love all the time. Let me give you some examples. We forsake our first love when we think that our relationship with God begins with us. We forsake our first love when we live as if our relationship with God ends with us. We forsake our first love when our plan is anything other than God reuniting all things in Jesus. We forsake our first love We live as if change is just putting something off or putting something on. We forsake our first love and we live and think change in my life means I just gotta stop doing this or stop doing that and we completely miss that our minds and imaginations and hearts have to be captivated by Jesus. We leave Jesus out of change We are forsaking our first love. We forsake our first love when we live as if our marriage is just an arrangement rather than a long journey where all of our brokenness is being made beautiful. We forsake our first love when we live as if anything other than Jesus is the purpose and motive and mission of our lives. We forsake our first love When we battle evil and we think that that battle is anything other than a wrestling match in which we need to step into a bigger reality of who Jesus is. And what Jesus is doing here is he is pulling us out and saying, think about your life. Look at verse 5. Think about your life. This is what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus is saying, think about your life. Reflect on your life. Repent. Come to me. This is not saying that all of a sudden at the end, the script is flipped And the story of the gospel is now changed. And Jesus did all this and now you just need to focus on yourself. That's not about, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not giving us license to focus on ourselves at all. He's saying as you reflect on your life and remember what's going on and what has happened in your life, bring all that you are to Jesus. As you're reflecting and as you are conjuring up what has happened in your life and as you see your own tendencies, bring all of what you are to Jesus. Maybe what gives us a little window into this is Jesus' relationship with Peter. We spent a lot of time looking at this a couple years ago. We can all relate to Peter as well, right? He's the guy that won a bloodless path to glory. You remember us talking about that? We all want a great marriage, without Jesus. We all want perfect children without the gospel. We all want a bloodless path to glory. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter three times? I'm sure you do. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You see, at rock bottom, Peter had forgotten the love, the simple, deep, comprehensive love of God in his life. And Jesus says the same thing to you and the same thing to me. Do you love me? Jesus wants us to think about what is getting in the way of loving him. What is getting in the way in your life of loving Jesus? Is it the fact that you're really cranked up and exaggerated about doctrine Or on the other end, are you not loving Jesus like you should or could because you don't care about doctrine at all? Is your career getting in the way of loving Jesus? Are your own personal goals getting in the way of loving Jesus? Are you working so hard and working so much that you're not taking time to reflect and think about loving Jesus? Are your problems so big that you feel like you can't take them to Jesus? Have you forgotten how lavishly Jesus forgives us for anything that we have done? Or are we stuck in this arrogant position of thinking that what we've done is too much for God to forgive, too much for Jesus to want to forgive? Jesus says, repent. And that's not a negative thing at all, it's more than saying, I'm sorry. It's more than crying, uncle. In the Bible and in Christianity, repentance is positive. Repentance is a good thing. Repentance is actually a gift. And when Jesus calls us out and says, repent, what he's saying is this, tell me why you need me. That's what repentance is. When you tell Jesus why you need him. And if you're not repenting, then we're not telling Jesus why we need him, you see? But to repent means we get to tell Jesus, Jesus, I need you because I'm making way too much out of this in my life. Another way to think about repentance is this. It's not just saying why we need Jesus, but repentance is also tapping into all the blessings we have in Jesus over and over and over again. It's connecting our lives with Jesus more and more deeply. See, at the end of the day, when you think about this whole year and think about this church at Ephesus and think about all the things that we've talked about, however much you've forgotten, however much I have forgotten, and it has been a ton that I have forgotten. This is the big takeaway of this whole year and this whole study of Ephesians and this whole book and all of this here in Revelation 2. God refuses to let us think that our lives or our church is held together. By anything other than his incorruptible love. That's it. And friends, that is what brings us directly to the table.
1: As we come to the table this morning, we get to celebrate. And proclaim the incorruptible love of God to us in Christ. And as we come to the table, we're we're proclaiming that there is a a better way. And that that better way has actually already been done for us. That there's a better way than our sin. There's a better way than our destruction. And that better way is Jesus' blood. That forgives us of our sin. And brings healing where we bring destruction. We're also celebrating that there's a better way too because the better way didn't just stop with Jesus forgiving us of our sin, but Jesus actually grows us into who he is making us to be. That there is a better way that Jesus is not done with us and he continues to work in us and on us to more deeply see and understand and live in light of the reality of his incorruptible love for us. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of of your sins, take and drink of it, all of you. And as often as we come to this table, as often as we come together and we say, there's a better way, as often as we come and sit and take in light of the reality that God's incorruptible love to us in Christ defines us, we are proclaiming the Lord Jesus' death until he comes again. And he sets this table here before us and we will feast with him together forever in all things that are made new.